everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have the man whose surprise victory for DA in 2017 really jump-started the recent progressive prosecution movement. Larry Krasner went from a criminal defense attorney and a civil rights attorney to DA of Philadelphia. Welcome to our show, Larry. Hey, great to be here. So are you surprised by how quickly the movement for progressive reform and prosecution offices has caught fire across the country? Uh, That movement has been around sort of like a seed for quite some time, and it was definitely growing. Uh, Before my election, there were some wonderful progressives elected before me, Kim Fox being just one of them. Um, But I am really encouraged to see how big and bushy and flowering and happy that plant is right now. And describe your first two years as DA in Philadelphia. Has it been more contentious than you thought it would be? It has not been more contentious than I thought it would be. Uh, You know, I analyze what is happening with the movement for criminal justice reform is that it's not a story about a few people getting elected DA. Those people are not not leading this movement. They are simply technicians for a much broader grassroots movement. And so I analyze it in terms of social justice movements. There is always tremendous controversy around the ones that succeed and around the ones that are moving quickly. What would you consider your greatest accomplishments so far? I'm not sure that I have one, to be honest with you. And I know that that might sound like I'm being disingenuous, but um, I, I think maybe the best thing that we have done is we have been able to amplify a conversation that was already going on. You know, our timing is very fortunate because Michelle Alexander did what she did a decade ago when she wrote The New Jim Crow, and then Brian Stevenson did what he did when he wrote Just Mercy, and everybody started to repeat the phrase, you're not the worst thing you ever did. Um, And then other things happened during that period of time that I think show that at the level of culture, we really are in a grassroots movement that is dedicated to ending mass incarceration, to reducing the amount of supervision, uh, to taking all of the different ways that slavery has morphed into other forms of social control and reversing that. Uh, you know, I, I think that we've been fortunate to be a part of it, uh, but I, for me, it's 
just coming from everywhere. It's happening organically from all different directions. And the prosecutors themselves are just technicians for what's going on. And speaking as a technician, uh, what are some of the things that you've done to reduce mass incarceration? Well, a lot of the, a lot of what is so great about being a progressive prosecutor is that prosecutors have tremendous discretion. It's baked into the system, been there for a long time. The status quo was very happy with it as long as it was used to be retributive, to be punitive, frankly, to be mean-spirited. Um, but it's there. And so, you know, when Kim Fox or Chetta Boudin or uh, Rachel Rollins in Boston or, um, you know, Marilyn Mosby or my office decides that we're not going to charge a particular type of case as a crime, for example, possession of a small amount of marijuana, we can just do it. We don't have to log roll with anybody else. Um, or if we decide that we're not going to prosecute sex workers, because it just makes it more difficult for them to get out of that life and they are victims themselves, essentially, we can just do it. You know, that is one of the wonderful things is the amount of discretion permits us to make decisions not to prosecute or not to pursue the longest sentence or not to pursue the highest possible charge. And it, it, it does mean that more than even perhaps a member of the United States Senate, more than a member of the House, we have the ability to make things happen. And that goes along the lines of what we've been hearing for a long time, that the DA is the most powerful actor in the criminal justice system, correct? You know, again, I don't want to say we're necessarily the most powerful. Um, there's a lot of other players, police departments. I mean, in Philadelphia, the police department is 6,500 people, and they make discretionary decisions every day about what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, and in which neighborhoods, and against whom. Um, those are very, very powerful decisions as well, perhaps focused upon less than they should be in a system that seems to always be picking on the poor and picking on uh, people of color in disproportionate kinds of ways. But there's no question that prosecutors have a very powerful position. And... Have you been surprised at all as to how baked in some of these things are into the system that even you can't uh, change them overnight? I, you know, I never expected to change things overnight. I, I guess I would say I have been surprised that people are surprised. In the first year, we got a lot done. And that's, what I expected, because having been in the system for over 30 years, knowing its ins and outs and having spent four to five days a week in court and seeing how it worked, I, know, I knew that we could get a lot done in the first year. I was, however, surprised, maybe it's partly with political culture as opposed to criminal justice culture, that the status quo freaked out. And they did. They freaked out because I suppose they thought election cycle promises wouldn't be kept, and they were. Um, so that surprised me a little bit. You know, I would describe the first year as being the year when we changed things a whole lot, and the second year, we're now just after the end of our second year, as being the year when the status quo uh, giants awoke, and they got up, and they picked up their clubs, and they started trying to come at us, and by us, I mean me and, and several other progressive DAs around the country, because we are, we are and were having so much success. And can you describe 
uh, some of the things that have happened in Pennsylvania where they've attempted to take back some of your power, just your power, by the way? So um, there has been a failed attempt in Pennsylvania, in my opinion, to um, to empower the attorney general, which is the statewide prosecutor, to do cases in Philadelphia that they have never done. Um, and, you know, it did, in fact, get through the legislature. But the public reaction to it was so negative in Philadelphia that the architect of the whole thing, who was the elected uh, attorney general in Pennsylvania, immediately announced that he, he never wanted that power in the first place and he didn't intend to use it. And he hasn't used it since it was passed around July. That's kind of telling because it's been several months. Um, Nevertheless, the attempt was successful, and, and in a state like Pennsylvania, where you have a very conservative legislature, what you're going to see is that those legislatures were very comfortable with there being discretion as long as the heads of these prosecutorial entities were punitive and were retributive and were mean-spirited and were doing things that were consistent with the financial interests of many of these conservative legislators, meaning filling up the prisons. Um, you know, that's, I mean, that's just how it's going to be in, in a place like Pennsylvania. So they are going to come at us and they have come at us in, in various different ways. The situation with the attorney general being just one of them, perhaps the most amusing to me was when the state legislature, uh, was considering passing a law that you can't close any prisons without at least a one year study. I guess you can imagine why, because Philadelphia was no longer a pipeline of, black and brown people predominantly that they could lock up for long periods of time in their prisons as an industry. I mean, I know that sounds dramatic, perhaps it sounds a little excessive, but when you understand that many of these counties have lost coal, they have lost steel, and that often one of the most significant industries in town is that big state prison there that employs so many people and supports the tax base, supports the schools, supports the diners, supports the bars. You come to understand that there truly is a commerce in human bodies that are taken from Philadelphia, which has no state correctional institution, and are put in far-flung counties across Pennsylvania, where um, they are not, in fact, locking up their own. They're locking up our own. Were you expecting the state to come back at you? Um, I mean, I think the short answer is yes. <laughs> because I had seen what happened to Aramis Ayala, the district attorney in Orlando, um, before I was, well, I believe it was before I was in office, but it was certainly, it was early on. I had seen that she took a particular position with reference to the death penalty, a uh, position that was, it was found, it was grounded in the facts and law that she was not inclined to pursue death penalty and the governor snatched powers away from her uh, and tried to turn them over to a more conservative prosecutorial entity, entity there. Essentially, it was the Attorney General of Florida. So I had seen it could happen before. Um, and, you know, in light of that experience, we did various things that would make it harder for them to try to pull those tricks on us here. But ultimately, our power and our success comes from the people. And that's, I believe, what the status quo doesn't get. What they don't get is that the people are not with them, have not been with them for a while. The people are the ones who have carried the burden of mass incarceration. They've seen it wreck their neighbors' lives, 
their cousins' lives, their brothers' lives, their coworkers' lives, their high school friends' lives. They've seen what mass incarceration actually does, which is to decimate neighborhoods, populations, and groups of people in a way that is highly discriminatory, and they don't like it. All of that chest thumping and foot stomping, all that saber rattling about how we need to lock up even more people for longer, that way too much incarceration is never enough. It's not popular anymore, and it's not going to be popular again. And as they start to see that more and more and more progressive prosecutors are being elected in the biggest jurisdictions in the United States, the ones that actually drive mass incarceration, you're going to see a lot of these politicians who are frankly nothing but chameleons, they're going to turn right around and they're going to start talking about how they're progressive too. And they're okay with these good new modern policies. Because, I mean, to be honest, there's plenty of politicians who are not driven by ideology. They're not driven by experience or fact. They're driven by one thing alone, which is their own electability, and they're going to chase that. Well, we're already starting to see that. I mean, I, I covered the San Francisco election, and it came down to Chase Bodine, who is, you know, the clear reformer. But even his opponent, Susie Loftus, his main opponent, uh, was arguing that she was for reform, too. She just wasn't for the same kind of reform. That, you know, we hear that more and more. I was actually surprised to, ha to hear that in, in my election in 2017, and the election that mattered happened in May of 2017. I, I fully expected to go into this light-open race with uh, six or seven candidates in it and to be the one who was hollering end mass incarceration while the rest of them said, he's crazy, lock more up. But that's not what happened. What happened is all these, these candidates, many of them much more conservative, um, said, well, I'm progressive too. I'm just not unreasonable. I'm just not unhinged. I'm progressive light. And the voters didn't want to hear it. You know, the, the election was extremely successful. And I don't say that to, to, you know, tout my own virtues or anything like that. I just say that because we delivered a message that was not diluted, that was very clear, and that was backed up with a career spent pushing for the same things that we were saying. And that was successful because this is what people want, and it's what they're going to want more and more all over the country. We have we have probably 30-ish uh, people who I think can fairly be called significant progressive prosecutors in the country. I'm willing to bet you that in a couple of years you're looking at 60, you're looking at 70, and that matters because if you're talking about jurisdictions like Brooklyn, where Tiffany Caban came within a hair of winning, that is 2.4 million people. The, you can you can really grab mass incarceration by the horns, if L.A., the largest criminal justice jurisdiction in the United States, has a progressive prosecutor, and there's one running right now, and you start adding that to Chicago and Dallas and Houston and Philadelphia and Baltimore and Boston, as you start to see that happen, it's going to become obvious that this is the future and that the rest of these prosecutors need to get on board. It's really interesting because we've interviewed probably 10 to 15 candidates across the country. And if you listen to them, they all speak the same language, but they're all grounded in their own experience. They're not like copying each other. It's, it's a really interesting grassroots based movement. You know, it is. And obviously there's an old, an old cliche that all politics is local, but I'd say even more than that, um, criminal justice really is local because 
the jurisdiction that matters the most is not federal jurisdiction. It's state jurisdiction. And every state have law has laws that are significantly different than other states. So when you go to analyze a problem in Austin, Texas, it may be a very different solution than the one that you're going to find in Boston. You know, I think that's healthy. That's how it should be. What gave you the idea in the first place that you should run for DA? Uh, the crushing weight of mass incarceration was bugging me. You know, I am now 58. I guess I was 56 when I decided to run. And at 56, I had been a criminal defense attorney for 30 years, and I had done civil rights litigation, most of it being lawsuits directed at Philadelphia police officers for brutality, for corruption, for framing people, things of that sort. So, you know, I had had a very close-up tour of the criminal justice system, including trying death penalty cases uh, or things as simple as underage drinking, for 30 years, I'd been in courtrooms four to five days a week, and I saw it. But what I saw up close was a system that even though I was doing good work and getting justice for individuals, uh, a system that got worse the entire time, mass incarceration just got worse and worse and worse. And I was literally driving around Philadelphia, and I'm not, I'm not making this up, this is real. I was literally driving around Philadelphia with four sale signs on public schools at the same time as we were building more and more prisons, you know, and I just felt like I haven't really done anything with my life. You know, it doesn't matter that I was able to help out a few thousand clients and get some of them justice in an unfair system. The system has to change. We, we had a race where I thought there was some possibility I might have an impact. And so I got in. Um, What stands out as the worst injustice that you've personally seen in your career? Oh, oh my goodness, that's quite a list. Um, well, I guess if we are talking not in terms of a single individual case, but if we are speaking of the most sweeping aspect of it, I think the greatest injustice underlying our system is the completely false assumption that people never change. Uh, and therefore, it makes sense to give a juvenile a death sentence, which used to happen in Philadelphia. It makes sense to give a juvenile a sentence of life without any possibility of parole at 14 years of age because it used to happen. That seems to me to be the fundamental point, and that's where the cultural moment is happening. Because if you take on the one side the notion that this everything is a cartoon, everyone is two-dimensional, no one changes, no one ever gets any better, victims are never perpetrators, perpetrators are never victims. If you take that binary and false view of the world, and then on the other side, you take what Brian Stevenson is saying in Just Mercy, which is that you're not the worst thing you ever did, that people can do a monstrous thing, but not be a monster later. If you take that, which is the more modern view, which is the way we are trending, which is what the grassroots see, then I think you see the fundamental injustice of viewing the world in those terms colliding with the reality that people now know better. Can you describe your work on behalf of those wrongly convicted and how your office is uh, is trying to free people that have been wrongly convicted and also prevent future wrongful convictions? <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. So um, there, there used to be a 
conviction review unit in the Philadelphia DA's office. It was basically a phony. Uh, it would look at files and time and time again say, we don't find a problem here. Units like that exist in many other cities around the country. It just turns out no one ever made a mistake in their jurisdiction. Turns out everybody in jail is actually guilty. That, of course, is nonsense. So we got a, an expert in the field to head up a unit within our office. We have staffed it, not as well as I would like, but we staffed it with many more attorneys and more resources. And we have been willing to look very carefully at this point at about 250 cases. It may even be a little bit more. In the vast majority, we agreed that the conviction should stand, but so far there have been 12 cases in which we have um, requested that the conviction be reversed, and we have succeeded in getting judges, when they were fully informed of the situation with the case, we succeeded in getting judges to exonerate these people, meaning get rid of the conviction, and that meant in every case that they were released from custody. These were serious cases. These were you know, um, the worst kinds of crimes that there are. But the point is really this. The point is really that you either have an accurate system or you don't. Because every innocent person sitting in jail is taking the place of the guilty person who got away with it. And that's why we place just as strong an emphasis when we can on cold cases, on solving old homicides that were never solved. We have at this point... Uh, we have solved three very old homicides. One, I think, was 31 years. Another was 28 years. Um, a third was very lengthy as well because it's the same thing. You know, when you have detectives who have either made a mistake or, frankly, cheated in order to try to get a conviction and try to clear a particular case, the consequences are devastating for the victim, for the survivors in that case, because they're sold a lie about who committed the case and the perpetrator gets away with it and doesn't just get to get away with it for a long time. They usually get away with it forever because investigations do not get better over a long period of time. So we really see these two things as being the same thing. Conviction integrity means getting the conviction that should have been in the first place of the person who's guilty, but it also means making sure innocent people don't sit there in their place. So the Philadelphia Fraternal Order of Police is kind of notorious, maybe second only to the New York uh, branch. Um, talk about your efforts at police accountability and what it's like to deal with uh, the fraternal order of police. So, um, you know, we believe in accountability for everybody. We believe rich people and poor people and famous people, people who are not famous, uh, police officers and other people have to be fairly, even handedly judged. Uh, and they have to be accountable for what they do wrong. That has not been the culture here for a long time. Some of that culture, which has been a culture that was always looking the other way and giving you know police officers the benefit of the doubt, frankly, covering up misconduct by a small number of the very large police department that we have in Philadelphia, we believe that that is wrong. And it's also extremely harmful because when the public does not trust the police, because the police with impunity can beat them up, can do things during an interrogation that they should not be permitted to do, that the police can convict innocent people with these kinds of tactics, then the public will not engage with the police as witnesses, as victims. It's a, it's a very, very important phenomenon in law. And I think it explains, for example, why it has been so harmful to have illegal stop and frisk 
because this kind of conduct fundamentally makes us less safe. So, yes, we have been willing to take the police officer who committed a crime and prosecute that police officer for committing a crime. It doesn't seem controversial, but in a place where there's no accountability, it can be controversial, for example, with a union head. Now, we've been blessed in the sense that our prior commissioner believes in police accountability, too. And so we were able to work with the police commissioner effectively on police accountability, even though the head of the FOP was screaming his head off the whole time about how this was terrible. The, it is important to recognize that FOPs don't run the police department. Uh, police unions are not in charge. Often they are not working as officers at all. They're simply, you know, officials of a union. And it's also important to understand that many of these unions, including Philly, are dominated by their retired members. It means a prior generation, which in Philly was nearly all male and nearly all white, and in reality, very conservative, very Republican, is standing as the voice of the current on-duty officers who are much more diverse, who are much more liberal and progressive, who, ha who are much more women, and who have a different attitude. So, you know, it, it should then be no surprise that the Fraternal Order of Police, with its, I mean, frankly, perennially, all-white, all-Republican leadership, endorsed Donald Trump, in a city that voted 85% for Hillary Clinton. And that when the FOP did that, the Black Officers Association went nuts and did their own independent press conference and endorsed Hillary. What I'm saying is the leadership of the FOP is, you know, for the older folks in your audience, it's a bunch of Archie Bunkers. It's a bunch of old right-wingers who are sitting back on their lazy boy chairs. They're watching... Uh, you know, MAGA rallies and feeling good about that. And they are not the voice of modern police officers who want integrity, who don't want the corrupt ones to be their supervisors. They want to push the corrupt ones out of the way so that they can have good careers and become supervisors themselves. I think we have a good relationship and, and a, uh, an improving relationship with active police officers in Philadelphia. We are looking forward to having a, an excellent relationship with the new commissioner who's coming in in a few days. But our relationship with the Fraternal Order of Police in Philly is not going to get better until they get better. It's about time that they had some leadership that wasn't 100% on the MAGA train. And then can you uh, update us on your efforts to end the death penalty in Pennsylvania and where those efforts stand? Well, I am not actually making any effort to end the death penalty in Pennsylvania, uh, although I do know what you're referring to. What happened in Pennsylvania is that there were a couple of cases in which the that were death penalty cases where the defense attorneys challenged the death penalty by saying for the last 40 plus years, it has been imposed in a way that is unconstitutional. This could be a valid legal argument if the facts support it, statistics support it. This is the same kind of argument that the United States Supreme Court bought back in the 1970s when they invalidated the death penalty across the United States for several years. And that same type of issue was raised in Pennsylvania based upon 40 years of experience. So we did our homework. We looked at essentially every death sentence that had happened over the last, you know, over the last approximately 40 years, but more to the point, even up to the point before we were in office. And what we saw that was that it was not being imposed in a constitutional way, a constitutional way. 
under the law would have meant that the ultimate penalty, death, was intended for the worst of the worst, worst crimes, worst perpetrators. But that is not what we saw. We What we saw was that it had been imposed on the poorest of the poor and the blackest and the brownest. And it, it was being imposed on people who had very low, um, very, well, I shouldn't say very low, but who had serious mental health issues as opposed to the most vicious criminals committing the most vicious types of crimes. And therefore, because we had to answer this argument, and we did, uh, we agreed with the defense that as applied in Pennsylvania, the death penalty is unconstitutional. And that, you know, and that position then was considered by our Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which basically ducked, simply put, they decided not to decide. Um, so it's an issue that will, will surface again, I'm quite sure. And finally, uh, what advice would you give to prospective reformers? The advice I would give to prospective reformers, and I assume you mean criminal justice reformers, but I guess it works for any reformer, is hmm, is the following. So I talked earlier about how there's this binary view of the world. People are all monsters or they're all saints. And nothing about that is ever going to change, which is an untrue view of the world. And when we look at other countries, for example, modern Germany, uh, and we look at their systems of justice, what we see is they have much less crime, much fewer people in custody, and they have a much more rehabilitative public health view of how you deal with criminal justice. Well, that rehabilitative public health view is based on the reality that people do change and that human dignity is premised on the reality that you can imagine a better self and you can become a better self in many, many cases, not every single case, but overwhelmingly people can do better and they can be better. Well, guess who doesn't want you to believe that? The status quo is made up of incumbents. There are people who have been in power, whether it's political power within a party or whether it's elected power for a very long time. And they like a world where everything is Black and white, everything is yes or no, everything is binary. Because what it means is that they have their power and they're never going to lose it and you shouldn't challenge it. You are never going to change. They're never going to change. Nothing is ever going to change. This is part of what underlies the problem that we have with our criminal justice system because the narrative that serves mass incarceration also serves incumbency on the part of these people. They're wrong. I mean, that's the bottom line. If we look, for example, at something as simple as how incredibly well juvenile lifers are doing after they get out of custody, and they're doing incredibly well, what we see is this is not just idealism. This is actually science, that people do change profoundly, even people who've done truly terrible, monstrous things, like a murder when they were teenagers, they change profoundly, and they are not what they were 20 years earlier or 15 or 30 overwhelmingly. So what is my point here? My point is the status quo is lying to you in the same way as I, who never wanted to be an elected official, never really wanted to become the DA, could change. And I could say, all right, I'm going to run for this thing. Even though I don't have the political connections, even though I don't have a huge pile of money, I'm going to run for this thing and I could win. So can you. So can you. So can you become the ward leader if you're in a city full of ward politics. 
So can you become the person who starts the nonprofit that changes things? So can you become the person who knocks out the elected officials who are members of that club of the party of incumbency, the party of let's all get along and not change much? So can you. You can do this. And they don't want you to know it, but the bottom line is they'd like to tell you you can't get there, but you can. You can get around it, you can get over it, and you can push it back. No matter how big that obstacle looks, you can do it. Thank you so much for being on our show, Larry. It was great to talk. Thank you, David. Thank you. That was Larry Krasner. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. We will be back next time with more from the Tales of Injustice. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com. <laughs>